Good morning. I want to welcome you to Capital City. We're glad that you've chosen to come and join us on this day of worship. If you're watching us online this morning, we're glad that you're a part of our worship service as well. As many of you are aware, uh, this, this end of this week, uh, a lot of the COVID mandates and restrictions that were put in place are going to be lifted, and hopefully we begin to get back to some sense of normalcy as we used to know prior to COVID. And so we wanted to let you know that uh, next Sunday, uh, we plan on returning to uh, using our worship stations as we used to do prior to COVID. So communion will be at the stations uh, next Sunday. Our coffee bar will go back to, to the way it used to be. We'll still have the, uh, the prepackaged uh, packets for those of you who would prefer to continue to use those. But again, uh, next Sunday we'll have communion at our worship stations. We're, we're just so excited to be able to, to get back to doing church as we've done it here for a long time. And I hope that you are as well. Let's pray together this morning. Father, again, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with, for the opportunity to be in this place, to worship you. Father, thank you for those who've come. Thank you for those that are joining us online, uh, Father, wherever they may be. I pray, Father, that today each of us will feel your presence, that your spirit will speak to us, that we'll be drawn closer to you. And that, Father, not only will we use this day to lift you up, but every day that you give us breath to lift up your name in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his most precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Do you remember some of the things that uh, you heard your mom and dad say that caused you to maybe scratch your head when you were a kid? You know, I posed that question a few weeks ago on Facebook, and here are a few of the responses I got. Let me see by show of hands how many of you heard your parents say any of these. Because I said so. Yeah? Yeah? I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. Did you hear that one? <laughs> this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You always want to ask, well, then why are you doing it? But, you know, when I was a kid, we had to walk to and from school, and it was uphill both ways. Did you ever, did you ever figure that out? I still struggle with what my dad was saying on that one. Were you raised in a barn? Then shut the door. You know, I always wanted to reply, I'm not, but Jesus was, and I'm a follower of his, but I didn't. I was worried about what might happen if I said that. If you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. How many of you have said that to your kids, by the way? Yeah, so I figured. And then this last, you can make a preacher cuss. Now, I don't think this one came from a member of our church, but there's a few of you here this morning who could, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. You know, th those statements by our parents also got me to thinking about some of the things that Jesus might have said that uh, maybe caused some head scratching as well. And I posed that question on Facebook as well, and here are a few of the responses I got. Let the dead bury the dead. Didn't know they had zombies back in Bible times, did you? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You left-handed people got lucky with that one, didn't you? Love your enemies. You must hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, or you can't be my disciple. Wow. You know, for the past few months, we've been locked in on this verse from the book of Luke, which I'm sure caused the disciples to do some head-scratching when they heard Jesus say it. He said, if any of you wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny myself? Like give up the things that I have or want? Take up my cross? I mean, crosses were for criminals, and what we have seen them do to guys on a cross, well, that doesn't look like a lot of fun. Follow me? follow you <laughs> exactly what does that mean well this morning we continue building 
on this idea of becoming a disciple as we take a look at a section of Scripture that I'm sure caused Jesus' followers to do some head-scratching, and maybe even it caused you to do some the first few times that you heard it. And I'm sure we've done some head-scratching for you this morning with this new series that we kick off today, Wabigby. Yep, you heard me correctly, Wabigby. Now here's what it actually stands for. When you believe in God, but. When you believe in God, but. Now if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone, I invite you to join me in the book written by Matthew who was a follower of Jesus. It's the first book in the New Testament, which gives us a lot of information about Jesus and his life. You know, Matthew's book, or, or his gospel, as it is often called, is a bit different from the other gospels that we have that give us a picture of Jesus' life. Matthew gives us great detail about the events leading up to Jesus' birth. We also learned the links that Herod, who was king at that time, went to in an effort to kill Jesus by ordering the death of all the boys who were under the age of two. We learn about the encounter that Jesus had with Satan and the temptations that he threw at him in the wilderness shortly after Jesus was baptized by John. Have you ever noticed that there's just something about Satan going into overdrive once a person makes that kind of commitment to God? I mean, if it can happen to the Son of God, surely it can happen to you and me, right? Satan tried his best to eliminate Jesus before his ministry got off the ground. And then towards the end of chapter 4, Matthew kicks off the beginning of Jesus' ministry with these words. Verse 17, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And then down in verse 23, Matthew writes that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease of sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And because of this news, Matthew tells us down in verse 25, that large crowds began to follow him. So as Jesus begins his ministry, we see two groups of people who have become a part of his ministry. The first is a group that becomes known as his disciples. Guys like Simon Peter and Andrew and a handful of others that Jesus specifically invited to follow him. Guys who were changed because of an encounter with Jesus that led him to become the center of their lives. The second group is what Matthew called the crowds or the multitudes. People who, who might have been touched by Jesus, and maybe even healed by him. People who were intrigued with what Jesus had to say and, and what he could do. People whose hearts had been stirred but who are not sure if they're ready, not just quite sure if they're ready to become a disciple of his. So group one, devoted, committed, all in. Group two, spectators, enjoying the show. Ever stopped and thought about which group you might be in? I might be in? Chapter five, we come to the start of this head-scratching section of Matthew's book that we're going to be digging into over the next eight weeks. It's a section of, of chapter 5 that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. I'm not sure why he did this. On multiple occasions in the gospel, we see where, where Jesus would draw away from the crowds, sometimes by himself, sometimes with his disciples. This particular time, the disciples follow him up on the mountain, and Matthew says that Jesus begins to teach them. 
And the Sermon on the Mount starts with this portion of Scripture that we call the Beatitudes. There are a series of eight statements that Jesus makes. Jesus says, blessed are. Blessed are people of a certain condition, and because of what they are going through or dealing with, eventually they will experience a specific result. And it's interesting, the head-scratching that I believe took place with disciples when Jesus made those statements. I mean, because you, when you look at it, it would seem like he's saying all the wrong things. Who are the people who are happy and enjoying life? Who are the ones for whom everything has turned out like it should be? Who are the ones whose lives seem to be in order and on the right path? Well, it's the ones who are poor in spirit. The ones who are mourning. The ones who don't fight back. The ones who hunger. The ones who are persecuted. And much more. You know, the statements that Jesus makes all deal with us taking a look at and honestly recognizing that life is not what it ought to be. We must be able, must be willing and open to talk about brokenness and hurt and loss. We have to be able to say to people that this world, that this world is not what it ought to be, that it will never pay off. No matter how hard one works in school, no matter how hard you try to fight off the bad things around you, it doesn't matter if you've succeeded in college or business and, and made a boatload of money. It doesn't matter if you're popular with a, with a nice house and multiple cars and other toys. There's more to life than stuff. And as Christ followers, if we're going to be able to help anyone, especially the, the younger generation that is being inundated, what will make them happy, we must understand that this world is broken and at war with God. Yes, there are answers, but they are not easy answers or simple answers. And I believe here in this section of Matthew's book, Jesus is going to lay some groundwork for us to build on when it, becomes, when it comes to becoming a follower or a disciple of his. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So Jesus starts off teaching with the word blessed, a word that he repeats eight times over these next few verses. The word blessed is oftentimes translated as happy. Now the problem with translating this word as happy is that happiness is usually dependent upon what? Our circumstances. We're happy at the birth of a baby. We're happy when our, when our team wins the big game. We're happy when our kids receive an award. We're, we're happy when that final loan payment is made. Happy because of a circumstance that we find ourselves in at that moment. But I think the word blessed has a bigger meaning, a deeper meaning that goes beyond our circumstances. The idea behind the word that Jesus repeats is a, is a sense of settled contentment. It's the idea of being content regardless of the situation that I find myself in. It describes people whose inner lives are, are rightly aligned, people who have discovered what is really important in life, and because of that, there's, there's a sense of well-being that comes over them as a result of this. Things, things may not be as you want, but still there's a peace and a calm and a settled contentment. In his commentary on Matthew's book, Michael Wilkins says, Blessed is a state of existence in relationship to God, in which a person is blessed even when he or she doesn't feel happy or isn't experiencing good fortune. So Jesus says, blessed, contented, regardless of the situation or the circumstances that one finds themselves in, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, if you woke up one day and tried to discover whether or not you were poor, 
How would you go about it? Ultimately, it is a question answered by comparing oneself to someone else, right? We compare based on our education, based on our finances, based on where we live, based on what we drive, on what we wear, who our friends are. And unfortunately, sometimes we even do it when it comes to where we are spiritually, or at least where we think we are spiritually. Luke shares a great story with us that Jesus is sharing one day with those who are around him. It's found in the 18th chapter of Luke's book or, or Luke's gospel. Starting in verse 9, he writes these words. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week and i give a tenth of all i get here's a guy who feels pretty good about himself doesn't he you know isn't it interesting that when we do our comparisons that oftentimes we choose people who appear to be or at least who we think are worse than us people rarely if ever say god compared to c.s lewis or mother Teresa." I'm pretty good. Now, usually we try to find those who we believe are worse than us to compare ourselves to, don't we? God compared to, you know, that person, or God compared to that person, I'm pretty good. We choose people who we believe are worse than us, and we hope that God sees it that way as well, don't we? We hope that our good works shine brighter than those of whom we try to compare ourselves against. Verse 13, Jesus goes on, but the tax collector, he said, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collectors were not well thought of in this day and time. <laughs> we really don't like them now, do we? Just don't tell James that, okay? But in Bible times, tax people were despised. And this man didn't try to hide how bad of a guy he was. Or did he try to impress God with what he had or what he had done? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In verse 14, Jesus continues, I tell you that this man, this, this tax guy, rather than the other, this religious dude, went home justified before God. <coughs> For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why was this tax collector exalted? I believe it was because he recognized his need for God's forgiveness. He recognized that he was spiritually bankrupt. He realized that he was poor in spirit. He didn't try to compare himself to anyone else that was around that day. Instead, he took a hard look at his life, and he realized that before a holy and righteous God, he was broke. Maybe he understood that the first step to becoming a disciple a follower of Christ was by acknowledging he had a need. Do you know why God gave us the Old Testament law? He didn't give them to us to make us better. He gave them to us so that when we would look at them, we would look at them like we were looking into a, <coughs> excuse me, like we were looking into a mirror and realize that we needed help because we were sinful and poor in spirit. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Rome, Therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by observing the Ten Commandments. 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of this verse, writes, The straight edge of the law shows us just how crooked we really are. You know, when we compare ourselves to others, we may feel really good about ourselves. But when compared to the straight edge of the law, the law of God, we realize just how bad we are. I want us to do an experiment here this morning for just a few moments. I'm going to go through the Ten Commandments. And I want you to keep a score of the ones that you've never broken. Okay? And after we go through them, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand to show how many you have kept so we can see how spiritually rich we really are here this morning. Okay? You ready? You judge yourself. Okay? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, don't raise your hand yet. You've got to keep a total. Okay? You shall have no other gods before me. If you have always put God ahead of family, job, sports, leisure activities, then you count that as one that you've never broken. Commandment number two, don't make an idol or a graven image that you bow down to. Now, if you have never used your hands and made an idol that you then bow down to, then you count that as one that you've never broken. Commandment number three, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. If you have never said, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, then you count that as one that you've never broken. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, if you have always honored God on the Lord's day, you've never skipped church when you've been on vacation, you've never skipped church to go to the lake or or to attend a ball game, you count that as one that you've never broken as well, okay? Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. If you were always obedient, to your parents you were you were respectful you you did what they asked you to do without complaining or fussing and now that they're older you take good care of them then you count that as one that you've never broken as well okay commandment number six you shall not kill or murder you shall not kill or now before you give yourself credit for that one let me remind you that jesus said if you hate someone in your heart it's just like murdering them but, but we won't count that right now, okay? We'll just overlook that scripture for just a moment. So if you've never killed someone, then you count that as one that you've never broken. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you were never sexually active prior to or outside of marriage, then you count that as one that you've never broken. But, but, but before you give yourself credit, let me remind you that Jesus said, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Adultery. But hey, we'll, we'll overlook that one because that's New Testament. We're looking at the Old Testament right now. Okay, so we'll just overlook that scripture for now. Number eight, you shall not steal. Pretty simple right here. If you have never taken anything that didn't belong to you, then you count that as one that you've never broken before. Number nine, you shall not lie or give false testimony. Now, if you've never said anything that wasn't true, not, not even just a little white lie, then you count that as one that you've never broken before. And number 10, you shall not covet. If you've never said, oh, no, no, not, not, not just said, not, if it's even been a thought, if you've ever wished that what someone else had was yours, then that's one you've broken. But if you can say, I've never done that, then that's one that you've kept as well, one that you've never broken. Quite a list, isn't it? Now, do you got your number? Got your number in mind? So how many have kept all 10? It's hard for me to see this morning, but... If you want to stand up, that way I can see for sure. Ten? Nine? Eight? 
Seven? Six? I thought Doc told me this was the spiritual group of this church. We'll just bring it into that experiment right there. No one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. For you see, when we compare ourselves to others, we can make ourselves feel good for a short time. But when we compare ourselves to the straight edge of the law, we realize just how bad we are. We realize how much of a sinner we are. We realize how we really are poor in spirit. It saddens me to realize how often I do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Motivated by wanting to show off, to gain some sense of approval, to get, to get a pat on the back or a way to go, John. And yet when I look at Christ, I realize he lived only to please his father. Not only were his actions right, but his motives were right all the time. He awoke hours before others to go off and spend time with God. Not because someone made him do it, but because he wanted to spend time with his dad. He, he was good with whatever crowd he found himself in, be it tax collectors or sinners, Pharisees or, or high officials. He always knew what to say to people because he listened to and was led by his father. And when I compare myself to Christ, I see how broken I am, how spiritually bankrupt I am. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed because they are being honest about their condition and their position. Blessed because they have discovered the truth that they are not what or where they ought to be because of what he has done. Blessed they are when they acknowledge their need for him, which then opens the door to becoming a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And look at the reward for the poor in spirit. It is the kingdom of heaven. Because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we become sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Our blessing is not just this day, this earth, and this time. Our blessing is the kingdom of heaven. Because the way to real wealth, real happiness, and true discipleship is when we see and acknowledge that we are broken and we are bankrupt apart from Jesus. The second beatitude that Jesus shares with his disciples, I believe, builds on this first one. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The idea seems to be contradictory upon, upon first glance, doesn't it? Blessed are those who mourn? I mean, blessed is defined as joy and happiness, while mourning is usually defined by sadness and grief. It appears that Jesus is saying happy are the sad. I'm sure the disciples were doing some head-scratching when they heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth, but I believe the point he was trying to make was really that simple. Happy are the sad. Sad and mournful because they realized just how broken and bankrupt they are. Sad and mournful because they have realized they must look in the mirror and see what they have become. Sad and mournful realizing that what we have done has caused others pain and heartache. Sad and mournful because the world that we live in is full of broken and hurting people. Sad and mournful because they are broken and hurting because of sin. Sad and mournful because we realize that in God's eyes, our greatest works, our most righteous acts are nothing more than what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah called filthy rags. But it is when we are broken over our sin and the destruction that sin has caused all around us that Jesus promised that we would be comforted. For it is the God of mercy who we call out to. He wants to restore the brokenhearted, to reach into the pain of life and bring hope and healing, but he can only begin when we admit who we are and realize where we are 
without Christ. And then we accept his offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And once we do, then we are on the road to being a committed follower of his, which then leads to blessing and comfort, regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. His name was Max. He was part of a group under the leadership of a counselor named Sean Murphy O'Connor. As O'Connor entered the room that day, he put Max on the hot seat. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? The interrogation continued for another 20 minutes. Max fudged and hedged and minimized and rationalized and justified his drinking pattern. The questioning continued as the local bar in Max's hometown was called. After speaking with the bartender, which the whole group could hear, Max unleashed a stream of profanity at O'Connor. Have you ever been unkind to one of your kids, a group member asked? Oh, I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys, Max said. I didn't ask you that, Charlie said. I asked, have you been unkind? At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to his kids. Well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old last Christmas, Max said. What happened, Charlie asked. I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. O'Connor picked up the phone and called Max's wife. We're in the middle of a therapy session, ma'am, and your husband just told us that he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas. Can you give me the details? It seems like it just happened yesterday, she said. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for her Christmas present. My husband drove her downtown, gave her money, told her to go in the store and buy the best pair of shoes that she wanted. On their way home from the store that day, Max decided to stop off at the Cork and Bottle Tavern and told Debbie that he would be right back out. It was 12 degrees outside, so Max left the truck running and locked the doors to keep Debbie safe inside. It was just after 3 o'clock that afternoon. Silence. Her voice grew faint. She began to cry. Max met some of his old army buddies in the tavern, she said, and he lost track of time, purpose, everything else. He came out of the tavern around midnight. The truck had stopped running and the windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. Doctors had to amputate her thumb and forefinger on her right hand, and we believe she's going to be deaf the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to his feet, making jerky, uncoordinated movements. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically there in front of the group. O'Connor stood up and said softly, let's split. Twenty-four recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed the stairs. No one will forget what they saw that day, April 24th, at exactly high noon. A few months later, the night before Max was to complete his treatment, Fred passed by his room. The door was ajar. Max was sitting at his desk, reading a novel entitled Watership Down. Fred knocked and entered. For several moments, Max just sat there staring at the book. When he looked up, his cheeks were streaming with tears. Fred, he said hoarsely, I just prayed for the first time in my life. 
Max was on the road to recovery. Well, big thing. When you believe in God, but don't believe, you need him. When you realize you need him, believing in him isn't enough. Even the demons believe in him, but they didn't think they needed him. But because of that, they have been at war with Jesus and with God since creation. The Pharisee believed, but he didn't realize he needed him. He thought he was good enough and could do it on his own. The tax collector believed, but more important than that, he knew he needed him. Max finally came to the realization that he needed Jesus as well. We all need him. There's not a person in this room or joining us online this morning that doesn't need Jesus. Our families need him. Our friends need him. Our co-workers need him. This world desperately needs him. And until we can admit our need for him, he can't use us. And his kingdom will not be available to us, nor will we ever find the comfort that our hearts truly long for in this world. Now, communion is a precious time for us here at Capital City, something we get the opportunity to share in each week. It's a time where we remember the greatest gift that we could ever see. A gift of mercy, a gift of love, a gift of grace, a gift of forgiveness, and a gift of eternal life. It's a gift for those who have realized that they are poor in spirit, who have called on him not just as their Savior, but also their Lord. And because of that, the kingdom of heaven is now theirs. We partake, not because of what we have done in his name, but because of what he did for us. This morning, if by chance you didn't grab one of the packets on your way in, there are some at the worship stations around the room this morning. Feel free to grab one by chance if you didn't get one. Let's pray together. Father God, again, we thank you for the opportunity to remember the sacrifice that you willingly made for us. To remember how far you were willing to go for us, even when we didn't deserve it. Father, even when we turned our back. But Father, we're grateful for the gift of life that we have because your son was willing to come and take our place. And so today, Lord, we pause to remember that sacrifice as we share in this small cup of juice and this small piece of bread, reminding us of your body and your blood that you shed for us, reminding us that you said you won't drink of it or eat it again until you get to do it with us in heaven. Father, we look forward to that day when we get to share that meal with your son and our Lord and Savior. It's in his name.